0: Hello and welcome to this, the first of the 2021 series of podcasts brought to you by AGRA, the Association of Genealogists and Researchers and Archives, the body representing professional genealogists. I'm Nick Serple and I'll be chairing a discussion with our panel on how best to commission effective research from a professional. At the end of this session, we hope you'll be in a better position to find and commission a researcher to help with your exploration of family history. And with me are four such professionals with a wealth of experience, Carol Gary Green, Mike Trenchard, Simon Martin and Mike Sharp. Well, I'll kick this off with you, Mike Trenchard. Our clients come to us with a wide variety of issues, some of them quite complex. When you are presented with a new query, what information do you need so you can give your client the best advice?
1: The important thing we get from a client is what they really want us to do. I mean, some people will say, oh, do my family tree as far back as you can. But sometimes the information we get from a client is very sketchy. And we can spend quite a considerable amount of time trying to sort out what the client really wants. It's important for the client to tell us that so we don't repeat what the client has already done for himself. Often often an amateur genealogist will have done quite a lot of work online, perhaps, uh, themselves. But without knowing what they've done, it's a little difficult to proceed. If they provide us with documents that they've had, you know, birth, marriage, death certificates, or, or any other documents that they may have, then that gives us a, a good start. Sometimes, of course, clients may want something very specific. They want the military service records of their grandfather or something like that. Um, But uh, if they want a good service from a genealogist, then they need to provide as much information as possible.
0: One of the issues that comes up is that sometimes they do present us with lots of facts and information they've gathered but not always properly sourced. Do you think it's the responsibility of the researcher to actually go back over and check all that to make sure that the sources are correct for the information they've given us?
1: Absolutely sources are key because without the correct sources You can't expect to produce a detailed report which is accurate. And even if someone gives you a date, which is, you know, the beginning of the 19th century, if you haven't made sure that the information um, later is correct, which goes back to the date they want you to start at, then it can be very difficult and you can go off on a tangent which is entirely wrong.
0: Carol, Kerry Green, if someone's got a problem or they want their family researched, what's the best way they can actually find professional research to do that for them?
2: They could look at our website, which is www.agra.org.uk. And on there we have several researchers covering the whole country. There is a list of researchers that you can look down and see if anyone's in the area that you're looking for. You can also search, so if you're looking, say, particularly for someone who's um, good at doing military research, for example, you can put in military in the search box and it will bring up those people for whom that is one of their specialities. Similar to if you want to look for a particular geographical area, you can either, you know, search for it on the search box as well as having the list of members. We also have a map which shows where all those members are situated. You're looking for a researcher in Cumberland, for example, you can zoom into that area and those people who are in that area will come up. Once you've found that, you can look at their profile on their member page, link to their website and get more information. And you can also, if they've got the address, you can contact them direct or telephone. And you've also got the chance to email them direct from the page which comes to us as a researcher from the Agra website. So there's several ways of getting in touch through that website and certainly recommend having a good look around before deciding which researcher you're going to go with.
0: I suppose one big advantage of using an Agra researcher is that they're part of a network of other researchers so that you're not just getting the researcher you're actually going to commission. They might well have a contact that could help with a problem somewhere else that they can relay back again.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's perfectly true. I mean, from my own experience recently, I'm doing research with a gentleman in Yorkshire that we've been working on for quite some time, and he found me through the Agra website. But I've recently commissioned research in Lincolnshire and uh, in the northwest through some of our associates on on the website, um, contacted them and got them to do some work for us. And also, because we get together in meetings with our local colleagues, it's often easy to get to know people and get to know what their areas of expertise are. And also through doing other get-togethers and everything, you get to know what other people's areas of expertise are. And it's very easy if you get someone who contacts you and they want something that you're not either confident with or you don't have experience with or you're too far from the archives in London, someone who you can contact that you can pass them on to. So it's very good that, you know, they don't just get one researcher. Sometimes they get about four or five.
0: That's value for money If nothing is. Mike Sharp, we have a you have a new client. It's obviously very important for us as researchers to establish a good relationship with that client. How do you set that up in terms of communication, information exchange, that sort of thing?
3: Well, now we come to the business side of things. Obviously, this is a very a very personal aspect. Every researcher uh, works in a in a different way. I think generally the client should, uh, or the prospective client should expect to uh, receive a proposal uh, from the researcher that demonstrates that the researcher's understanding of, uh, of what is being asked. That could be uh, a letter or a, uh, an email setting out how they would uh, propose to approach the work, that's the, so the sort of uh, sources that they would consult, the archives that they would visit if that's clearly necessary. Uh, from the outset, uh, and of course, estimates of time and cost. That uh, the the, uh, the financial side of things can often be um, very difficult to to estimate. We um, often don't know where a trail will lead and uh, how much um, effort will will be required. So. That's why very often researchers will quote an hourly rate and perhaps try to agree with a client a certain number of hours in advance and agree things in blocks. Also, how um, payment will be, uh, will be made, whether it's going to be through a bank or through um, PayPal or some other means. So um, all these are very important aspects at the commissioning stage so that the client knows what to expect and when, and also the researcher is clear. About what they're going to deliver and when,
0: Mike. I think these days um, some people do worry about personal information, don't they? And in terms of handing it to other people or to to a researcher, how do we deal with that?
3: As genealogists, most of us would be registered with the um, Information Commissioner, who sort of regulates exchange of, of personal data. Generally, we would, uh, I think, offer assurances to to clients that we. Um, uh, would not uh, communicate uh, information to uh, to third parties. In most cases, of course, we're researching things which are um, quite far in the past, where um, the privacy of um, of living people doesn't necessarily uh, arise, but obviously it does in, in, certainly in, in some sorts of cases where we're trying to, to trace missing relatives. Uh, I think again, it's another aspect that needs to be clarified at the commissioning stage. Important
0: to establish that relationship from the beginning then would seem to be the message. Simon, when clients come to us, sometimes it's not that easy to actually pick up exactly what they want us to do. There are so many different queries. You know, what do they want? Do they want a chart? Is it just to break down a breakdown of brick wall? Are you picking up work that's been done already? Do they want specific documents? How do you tease all that out and then produce your prospectus for them to how you best deal with that?
4: It's quite difficult sometimes because you get the most vague quest which comes through often without names or dates or even places, and it's very difficult to deal with very vague requests. So I sort of start off with checking this. it's got nothing to do with adoption because there are certain regulations there which mean that specialists have to deal with adoption. And then trying to tease out whether it's a total brick wall that you can never get over, if it is a John Smith born somewhere in the Wigan area in 1840, then maybe quite a lot of John Smiths in the Wigan area, and you can never actually get to the bottom of, of that and its client expectations. Often there's family tales. Now, these often have some truth attached to them, but it might actually be a different line of the family altogether than the one they think it is. It may be at a different generation from where they think it is, and sometimes you have to do a family reconstruction in order to try and find out where that tale's coming from. Some people just think because they've got the same name as a famous person that they're related to that famous person. There are a number of people who believe they're related to Samuel Compton, for example, in Bolton. Basically, most of the people related to him don't have the Compton surname anymore. Some people believe they're descended from George Stevenson. But George Stevenson has no male descendants with the surname Stevenson. So it's a case of trying to work out whether it's a goer or not that the surname is definitely a relative because you're basically doing the research twice. You're researching the famous person backwards and you're researching their family backwards and hoping that they coincide. Also, if case has been with another researcher, it's worth trying to get hold of their reports, working out why the client doesn't want to use that researcher anymore and see if it's something simple that you can do because of your location or because records have moved on since... That's
0: which our research was done. Mike Trenchard, I think people who watch the television programme, who do you think you are? Imagine that after a 10 minutes' work, we'll take it into a room where there'll be sitting a person <laughs> wearing white gloves usually, <laughs> opening a huge ledger who will tell them exactly what happened to their ancestor in 1673. How important is it to get over to people that documents go missing, people go missing? Sometimes there is no information available, but they are paying for your time, not for the production of any evidence.
1: That, that is very, very important. If a client comes to you and it expects you to do it in a very quick time, especially if they want a, you know, a full family tree back as far as they can get, then it is very difficult for them that they have to understand that what they see on the television programmes is the result of months and months of work, probably by a whole team of researchers. And therefore, what the TV programmes are showing you is the most entertainment value. They might have researched a lot more than you actually see in the television programme. They have just chosen what really is best for the television. And it is important to say that the work that you will do will comply with the details that they've given you at the beginning. In fact, in the report, is it is important right at the beginning of your report to, to say exactly what the client has asked you to do so that you can report exactly on what the client wanted. Also, I mean, you mentioned earlier about other... Uh, researchers reports and sometimes a client will give you that report as a starting point well it is important for genealogists in their reports to give full sources of absolutely everything that they refer to so that if someone picks up your report in in five years time for instance they will know exactly what you've done so they don't repeat what you've done especially if they they value the kind of work that you've done. And they can go on into a, a new area of research confident that what has been done before is correct.
0: I suppose it's quite useful to mention what you haven't done as well in that context.
1: Absolutely. And, and sometimes at the end of a report, you'll give uh, suggestions for future work on the basis of what you've done already carol
2: following on from what mike just said there it's i think it's a matter of managing expectations as well because people will come to you with all sorts of expectations that as simon was saying earlier that they're descended from someone particularly famous in the area or you know that their aunt said that you know such and such a person was on this particular voyage to the arctic where they ended up having to eat polar bears because we're stuck in the ice for so long. It's a matter of teasing out just how much is actual real information and how much is hearsay and what they expect from you. You know, the number of times we get emails from people saying, it's my mum's birthday next month and she said that she'd like a family history. Do you think you can do it for me? And it's like, um, you know, so I just have to reply back and say that, you know, the minimum time really for anything worthwhile would be about six months. In some cases, it can take, you know, a couple of years, depending on how far back they want to go, how many records, whether they just want to look at one particular line of the family or whether they want to do the whole family, the expectation that the records will be there. Because as we all know, when you start looking through particularly parish registers, that, you know, not all of them survived. Some parishes, the registers, didn't begin until the 18th century. In others, you know, they were lost during the interregnum after the Civil War. Like, there's one parish, Per Hesel, where the top page of every page in the register is illegible because it's been water on it, so you can only really read the bottom half of every page. If your person you're looking for is in the top half of that page, you know you're a bit stuck really I always when I'm contacting clients I always remind them that you know it's so long as the records are there and their ancestors are mentioned in the records and also I think Mike sort of like mentioned this in passing but they often will say to you well if you can't find him do I have to pay you and, um, and my response to that is well I've still spent the time looking for them it's not like no win no fee situation but a number of times people have said to me well you know you didn't find anybody so why do I have to pay and it's like well yes but I still spent three, four, five hours looking for them. So the managing expectations of what a client wants is very important. And I think that's something that, as Mike Scharf was saying, about getting that set up before you you commence the research and making sure that people are aware that it's not like it is on TV and that it takes a lot longer than that.
0: It's interesting. I had a phone call from someone I knew who works for a national newspaper a few months ago saying one of our readers has traced their ancestry back to Robert the Bruce. Would you be able to check it? And I said, well, by when? He said, well, we're printing it tomorrow. And um, <laughs> I, uh, I declined. I did explain to him it might cost him many hundreds of pounds to get a genealogist to actually do that. Mike Sharp, you wanted to come in on this?
3: Uh, yes, I just wanted to uh, reiterate what uh, Mike and Carol was, were saying, really. I mean, uh, very often defining what is and is not available is one of the most important parts of a project. I think a lot of people have the expectation that uh, when we, you know when they hit a brick wall, it's because they haven't found that the information is out there, but they just haven't found it. Everything should be online; everything has survived, and it's just a matter that they haven't looked at the right places. Whereas very often it's possible to show that um, they probably are looking in the right places, but as Carol says, not to, with parish registers in particular. Not all have survived, I think it's around 10,000 parishes in England and Wales, and you know, many where the records have have not survived. And so quite frequently in projects, I'm able to go back to the beginning of the registers for a particular location, and uh, I have to stop there, I have to explain to the client that it's it's not possible to go further because their ancestors probably were in that place, but we can't know of them because the, the registers just haven't survived. I think most people are accepting of of negative searches that not everything is there to be found.
0: Parish registers are particularly difficult during the Commonwealth, of course, when the Um, state took over registration from the church for a period of time.
2: Some of the registers I've come across, parish register, it becomes a register of births, marriages and deaths, as opposed to the baptisms, marriages and burials that the usual parish register takes over. And then after a period of about, several years it reverts back again but you also get the same situation where the vicar or whoever he was at the time in his wisdom decided to move the original parish register to take it home with him or to try and keep it in some respects that didn't fall into the hands of, of the enemy so to speak and those registers are never found again it's interesting but it's a bit more difficult when you're researching
0: Mike Trenchard, it just sounds as though perhaps some clients don't fully appreciate how scattered and sparse documents are in some areas of research.
1: I think that's true. For instance, uh, people are often interested in service records of World War I. Well, unfortunately, 60% of them were destroyed by enemy action in the 1940s. Fortunately, my grandfather's records are just no longer available. And that can be very difficult. There are other ways you can try and get around it by looking perhaps at war diaries, if you happen to know the the regiment that the individual served in. But negative reports are equally valid, I think. We try obviously to provide something which is positive and informative, but quite often you will write a negative report. But obviously, if possible, suggest other ways in which the research could be carried out to try and get round this particular impasse.
0: Simon, you want us to come back on parish registers, I think.
4: Yes, because I mentioned Bolton earlier on and the Samuel Compton's entries. In Bolton, they stuck to just writing a single line on every baptism, and you were lucky if you got the father's name. But in Bolton Abbey, across in Yorkshire the same date, you're getting grandparents mentioned and parents and... So it is very much what's
3: included in the registers as well.
0: Mike Sharp, you've got some thoughts on what people can expect or what needs to be explained to them in that area? Uh,
3: yes. Well, once the uh, researcher has done the research, obviously the client can expect to receive uh, a report of some kind. Again, this should probably be um, sort of pre-agreed at the commissioning stage, but uh, I think most researchers, particularly within AGRA, would provide a formal written report. Again, this is a very personal aspect in that every researcher approaches this in uh, in their own way, but... I think they should expect to um, see a description of what sources have been consulted, including negative searches, what has been found, then also some uh, analysis from this as to uh, how reliable the findings are, the implications uh, of what has been found for the search overall, so draw some overall conclusions. And I think, as as Mike said earlier, um, very often we would make recommendations as to what might be logical next steps uh, to take. So other sources uh, to look at, other archives to visit, perhaps other interesting areas that have been flagged during the uh, the course of the research that uh, could also be looked into. Reports don't necessarily need to be dozens of pages. A good report should be quite concise. Uh, And of course, also very important that it's fully referenced so that any other competent researcher can pick it up and look at the sources and documents that have been used and be able to go back to them to verify them. Very often it's people come to us when the reports that we receive, well sometimes they're not as uh, comprehensive as, as that.
0: I've certainly had a few requests lately to look for people in the post-World War II period and I think some people don't realise it. it's probably harder to find an individual in that period of time than it maybe is in the latter half of the 19th century.
1: Because of data protection rules, if nothing else, you know, it can be very, very difficult in post Second World War period. And often that's a period that you might want to look at if you're trying to source information on living relatives. This is the area in which uh, air hunting companies perhaps uh, concentrate on, but it can be very, very difficult. It's important to. Try and find a way forward by finding documentary evidence in whatever way is possible.
4: In the more recent period, sometimes you have to use newspapers and things like that, but you need a date. And often that's the thing that the client doesn't have and to search uh, just one newspaper for a month takes many, many hours.
0: Well, I think that's a fair point. And also, the later the date, the less likely they will have digitised the paper, in my experience. I had someone come to me saying, my grandmother did an interview with the Bolton Evening News in sometime in the 1960s. Is it possible to find it? Well, it is possible if you want to go through 5,000 editions of the Bolton Evening News, I suppose, but maybe they weren't going to pay for that sort of time. Census records and birth, marriage and death records are the ones that most amateur researchers start with because they're the most obvious ones and they cover that period of time. I think some clients I've had don't always accept the fact that people could just choose not to appear on a record and there was as much suspicion of bureaucracy in the 19th century as there is in the 20th century.
1: Yes, as far as census is concerned you might find someone say in the 1861 census and you won't find them in the 1871 census and that could be for a number of reasons. It could be, as you said, because someone didn't want to be there and avoided it. But it could also be that the census record hasn't survived. There are some census records which haven't survived. It could be because of um, mistranscription on various uh, uh, websites. Uh, For instance, if you don't find someone on ancestry in a census, you might find them in Find My Past. It can be difficult, but sometimes not impossible.
0: The other issue, Carol, of course, is that most things aren't online, are they? I think the National Archive had an article a couple of years ago saying less than 10% of their holdings are actually digitised. And I'm not sure whether people actually realise that, either.
2: No, I think a lot of people don't realise that. I think um, a lot of people think they can do the majority of their research online and that they don't actually have to ever step into an archive to find any information. The way that I usually explain it to people is if you think about an iceberg, What you see above the water is only a small bit of the whole iceberg. There is usually several times more below the water. And that's the same with records being online or in archives. There's maybe about 10, 15% of the whole records that are online. Some of those are large depositories like the census and some, you know, the parish registers that find their past and ancestry have done digitisation with, you know, local archives. But other records, like parish chest records, wills in local areas, land records, and just so many different things, quarter sessions. I mean, you know, sort of there's, there's so much in the local archive to find out, and that's the information that usually puts more it's not just like you know the born, married and died information. It's it's the bit that gives the the background to somebody's life. It's the bit that helps with social history. It tells us what they were doing, where they were, if they were in receipt of poor relief, or if they were indeed if they were paying, you know, sort of from from the parish, if they were someone whose money was collected on a regular basis to go towards poor relief. It would be brilliant if everything was online. It would certainly make our lives easier. But at the same time, go to an archive and discover just what rich information there is out there. I mean, even things like letters from people from the 17th and 18th century. And it just, it's just, there's just so much there to discover.
0: Mike Trenchard, you've got a view about this, I think. We have to remember
1: that the subscription sites like Ancestry and Find My Past are only digitising the records they feel they can sell. But as Carol was saying, there are many, many records in record offices which are gold dust to us, particularly in a particular piece of research, but they're obviously of little interest to some of the big uh, uh, database companies.
0: That's Um, that's a good point. A lot lot of family papers that do have a lot of information are never going to be of interest to Ancestry or Find My Past because... It's a niche thing, isn't it?
1: One example I have is uh, records in the Court of Chancery. You can find out an enormous amount about a family, even maybe find a family tree inside the court records. However, they take an enormous amount of research time to get into, and it can be quite expensive to find, to spend that amount of time, but the, the rewards can be tremendous.
3: Mm-hmm. Mike Sharp. Well, I agree with with what's been said. I mean, I think part of the, the challenge for us as professionals is actually uh, explaining to uh, to clients the potential range of sources available. I think we have a sort of a generation of internet genealogists now who've who've sort of grown up just with the idea of, of search engines and uh, just being able to put terms in, into boxes and expect their their family history to come up without any real understanding of the underlying sources. So um, that's part of our job to um, try and um, sort of open that up for them and explain, as others have said, just that the sheer breadth of uh, of material that uh, is available and is still tucked away in archives. Mike Trenchard. Uh, public
1: trees you find on subscription sites like Ancestry and there is the family tree already done for you and you just accept it and you, you put it into your own family tree and... Job done. Well, not quite. <laughs> my experience is probably half the public trees on Ancestry have some errors in them.
0: That's being very generous in my experience. Mm. <laughs> I did find one where the wife had died in 18, I think it was about 1875. And then when the husband died six years later, she miraculously was dug up and went along to swear his probate. So um, <laughs> that, that was fun. <laughs> Simon, you've got a thought about lack of images and things in certain parts of the country.
4: Yes. So you've got major black holes as well in the ancestry and family past data. Um, the ones that particularly bother me are Cumberland, Westmoreland, Worcestershire and uh, Herefordshire. That you can't actually get to the images. When we were out of the pandemic, I used to be able to see some of them at family history centres, Mormon family history centres. But they even close off the Worcestershire ones most of the time because the register covers such a wide timescale that the records are too recent, and so the whole microfilm is embargoed because it's it's just there's one recent entry in them.
0: We'll wind up, and I'm just going to ask the panel for their one tip about how you, as someone wanting information found out, can get the best from the researcher you commission. So if they can just give us one tip to make sure that you get your value for money and, and what you're looking for and what you should be asking the researcher. Carol?
2: I think I would suggest that communication is key between yourself and the client because obviously you need to know exactly what the client is after. And from their point of view, they need to know that you're okay to to find that information. So I think, you know, you need to have a good level of communication between yourself and the client and also be able to dig out, if you like, the information that they're after so that you're providing what they want instead of maybe a wider range of information.
0: Mike Trenchard. I
1: think you have to remember, or clients have to remember, that data is only as reliable as the person who supplies it. So if you're dealing with, say, birth, marriages and death certificates, the registrar is not going to check in any great detail what the client is telling him. So what you see on a certificate may be entirely fictitious, and that applies also to things like census records in the past as well. Simon? Set
4: an aim, a single aim. Stick to that aim. Tell us... All the things that are relevant to that aim, and don't, by the way, go off and tell us all about so do you may or may not have lived in the castle.
3: Finally, Mike Sharp. My um, tip would be for the clients to be succinct, to tell the researcher everything that they need to know in order to tackle the, the brief that you're giving them, but no more. Don't swamp us with information that is not directly relevant to the, uh, the questions that we're being asked to address. So um, just make it as precise and as focused as possible.
0: And that ends our Agro podcast on how family historians can best identify and commission a professional researcher. It just remains for me to thank our panel, Carol Kerry Green, Mike Trenchard, Simon Martin and Mike Sharp. Go to our website at agra.org.uk where you can find more information about what we've discussed in this podcast as well as a directory of agra genealogists all of whom are assessed by AGRA's board and work to our code of conduct.
2: Good luck with your future research and may your brick walls tumble.